You're listening to Climate Rising, an official podcast of Harvard Business School's Business and Environment Initiative. Before we get into today's episode, let me tell you about a new HBS online course called Business and Climate Change that we've just launched. In this five-week asynchronous online course, you'll learn the tools and tactics companies around the world are using to become more resilient to droughts, floods, wildfires, and storms, and how they're engaging in mitigation to reduce their emissions. This course enables you to leverage those insights to inform your own organization's strategy. Learn more and apply at the HBS online website or at hbs.me slash business and climate change. Now, on to Climate Rising. The human spirit is resilient. Our minds are engines of ingenuity. We are problem-solving people. This is a big problem, but the wonderful thing about the science is it's telling us what's coming our way. So we have time to act and let's use that time wisely. No time to waste. Let's get moving right away. I'm David Abel, and this is Climate Rising, a new podcast from Harvard Business School. On this show, we talk to leading thinkers from the worlds of business, academia, and environmental groups, exploring what businesses have done, what they can do, and what they should do to confront climate change. Today, we're discussing how businesses can cope with the potential costs of a warming planet. Here's what's at stake. The most recent national climate assessment estimates that the United States has $3.6 trillion in real estate, roads, and other assets that are vulnerable to the effects of climate change. Those risks are already clear in places from Cape Cod to Miami Beach, where increasing coastal erosion and greater sunny day flooding are regular facts of life. To be able to withstand rising seas and stronger storms, our communities and our businesses must become more resilient. That will require major investments, which we're already starting to see. Miami Beach, for example, has already spent more than $500 million on elevating roads and installing pumping systems. Much more spending will be needed in the coming years throughout the country, and that will require difficult decisions about what kind of investments are necessary. One of today's guests, John Macomer, says businesses have four options to deal with climate change, reinforce, rebuild, restrict, or retreat. By that, he means businesses must either invest in shoring up their operations or scaling them back. At the moment, he says, most are doing nothing. In addition to Matt Comer, who's a senior lecturer at Harvard Business School, joining us to discuss this need for resiliency is Rachel Cletus, the policy director of the Climate and Energy Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists, a national advocacy group in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Thank you both for joining us. Rachel, having written a number of reports on the subject, can you please start by telling us how you define this idea, this notion of resilience? So from my perspective, climate resilience has multiple dimensions. Uh, We're obviously talking about individual communities and their ability to withstand uh, harmful climate impacts that are worsening as carbon emissions rise. Uh, But it's about more than coming back to business as usual. We can't just be thinking about maintaining the status quo. We really have to recognize that with climate change, we're talking about a world that's really changing. It's already changed. 
And that's going to require more than individual actions. It's going to require uh, societal-level changes to our economic systems, uh, to our institutions, our governance structures. And one thing that I've heard from communities on the front lines of these risks, uh, often low-income and uh, communities of color, saying that just getting back to status quo with all its existing social and economic inequities is just not good enough. We have to make sure that these communities are participating fully in this low-carbon, climate-resilient future. John McOmer, your career has spanned the real estate and technology industries, and you've thought a lot about the impacts of climate change on insurance markets, transportation, and other sectors. Can you tell us how you define resiliency, whether you have any distinctions uh, from what Rachel said, and what you think policymakers, business leaders, and others should be focusing on now? Sure. Thank you, and thanks for having us. So I define resiliency in sort of the lay uh, application as the ability to bounce back. Uh, after a stress or a shock. So a stress or a shock might be a storm or fire or floods or something like that. Another aspect to it is the cost to prepare is usually quite a bit less than the cost to respond. So part of what I'm interested in is how people can think about these things ahead of time. My approach is much more from the financial point of view. I'm a finance professor here and came from the, the property industry. So I'm often thinking about finance in physical assets because that gets people's attention sometimes better than talking about human beings. But actually what we're looking to do in the real world, as Rachel says, is that protect and improve life for human beings. So the things that policy leaders and business others should focus on now that I've been thinking about are largely around uh, how to make decisions going forward, because it appears that society probably can't defend in place every asset and every person along the coast of the United States and every other um, nation in the world that has a shore. So therefore, how do you think which assets to defend when, which things to move, which things um, you might say should be allowed to depreciate quietly and, and we move on and do that in some kind of, of plausible or equitable way? So a lot of this has to do with probabilities. A lot of it has to do with time scale. But there is a decision methodology for this. And what I've been thinking about is how can we think going forward about uh, what makes sense uh, for everyone. And can you just give us a sense of what should be a priority now? I mean, we are getting to a point where uh, we're talking about a, a really short time span in which we could be seeing more and more catastrophic consequences from climate change. What, what needs to be the priority today in the next few years? What needs to be the priority is thinking about uh, what projects would be selected. So the selection process, if it looked at a national level about how do you think about maintaining the lifestyle for the greatest number of people would be one way to invest in projects. Another would be to say, how do we defend the most economically valuable assets like airports or subways? A third would be to think, how do the um, generators of employment or economy get defended? Those are three really different approaches. And there isn't really um, an idea about how to look at any of those first. So what happens instead is that the organizations that can think about it go ahead and invest. So you saw the famous pictures after Hurricane Sandy where in New York City, lower New York, uh, lower Manhattan, two buildings were brightly lit, the Bank of America building and the Goldman Sachs building. That's because those were wealthy organizations who thought ahead to um, make their buildings more resilient and to have backup uh, power systems and to put things upstairs. The 
organizations with access to capital and access to information will go ahead and invest on their own behalf as they should, that won't necessarily lead to the optimal outcome for everybody. Rachel Cletus, one of your recent reports is titled Underwater, and that provides a detailed look at how rising seas and increased flooding will affect regions throughout the country. Can you lay out the biggest challenges ahead and walk us through some of the report's conclusions? And can you spell out the parts of the country likely to be hit hardest by climate change? Sure. Uh, We released this report last summer, and what we were trying to do was point out that well before places go underwater, they will start to see such frequent disruptive flooding, high tide flooding, sunny day flooding is another term people have used, because sea levels are rising, that it's going to really disrupt livelihoods, economies, uh, people's homes, infrastructure, et cetera. And what we set about doing was taking uh, uh, data from NOAA, looking at sea level rise projections, uh, marry it with data data from Zillow, uh, property data, commercial and um, uh, residential real estate data along the lower 48 coastline to look at what gets flooded. And what we found was that well within the lifetime of a mortgage, so by 2045, We've got more than 300,000 homes and commercial properties that are at risk from this high tide flooding. And uh, that's going to be about $136 billion worth of real estate at current values. And by the end of the century, we're talking about 2.5 million homes and commercial properties, over a trillion dollars worth of real estate. That's pretty profound, not just for the properties themselves that are at risk, but what that signals for the communities in which these properties are located, the infrastructure that's near these homes, uh, and the fact that this is tied to the local tax base, for example. So that means the tax base is at risk and uh, communities may be less able to fund things like schools and emergency services. Uh, It also means that this is tied to broader financial implications because, of course, there are mortgages tied up with these homes. Uh, A lot of us have real estate in our retirement portfolio that might be at risk. Um, The taxpayers uh, in general might be at risk uh, as some of these places uh, start to really struggle and need uh, federal help. So we can see this problem coming because the science is very clear about sea level rise, especially by mid-century. We know that we have baked in a lot of the sea level rise because of our uh, current and past emissions. We do have choices about the kind of sea level rise we might see by the end of the century if we curtail our emissions. And what we uh, grasped from this research was the human dimension of what this meant. This means we've got a lot of people, a lot of property, a lot of uh, people's cultural identity tied up in the coast that is greatly at risk. The most important thing we can do now is really make sure that this risk is communicated clearly well ahead of time so that people have a chance to make decisions about what they want their future to look like. Uh, is that future about uh, staying in place and, and building seawalls and elevating homes? In some of the highest risk places, people are going to have to start grappling with the fact that they might have to move. Where are they going to go? What are going to be the new jobs and infrastructure in this place? Are there uh, any places you would advise against buying coastal property? <laughs> Well, I'm not in the business of creating the next real estate bubble, but I would say it's pretty clear in many communities uh, in Florida, for example, where uh, places like Miami are already uh, grappling in real time with the fact that, for example, they need stormwater pumps. Uh, They see uh, flooding in their streets 
regularly now, just during high tides, uh, during heavy precip events. There's real concern about the fact that... By precip, you mean precipitation? Precipitation, yes. When they have uh, heavy rainfall events uh, or during high tides, they're seeing flooding in their streets that's coming up through the stormwater systems. So they're having to install these very expensive stormwater pumps, and they know that there there's a time limit on some of these adaptation measures, that the sea is rising, and that ultimately some of these might prove to uh, just not be equal to the task. John Macomber, you've written recently about how developers should go about building in uh, a resilient way and what cities around the world should be doing to become more sustainable as their populations are expected to double to some 6 billion people by 2050. Can you explain some of the main challenges confronting developers and cities and give us a sense of what needs to be done here and abroad? Part of it, I think, starts with, in a sense, developers and cities can look at all these things as probabilities. So in a sense, it's not helpful to wait until the one path becomes clear and all the politicians are done arguing about it. Instead, it's an issue of decision-making under uncertainty, which investors do all the time. You don't really have to know exactly what's going to happen. You can think there's a probability that storms will increase or that sea will go up, and there's a probability that it will not. And you can adapt that probability based to your own thinking. That's what makes markets. So in terms of what cities have to do going forward in populations, there are uh, four trends that I study all the time. One is uh, massive urbanization. That's hundreds of millions of people move to cities seeking opportunity all around the world. Now, the second is resource scarcity. There's already not enough clean air, clean water, uh, land, energy, um, food, and there's too much garbage and too much traffic. So uh, ideally, you'd think that governments would go ahead and build out the infrastructure that we all need to address this using their taxing authority and based on evidence and consensus doing these things going forward. That doesn't seem to happen, doesn't seem to be the evidence. Then you add on to that the fourth trend of climate change, which exacer could exacerbate uh, urbanization and migration, uh, and the fact that governments are stuck. A lot of what I think about is how will um, private investors and all this capital in the world address these issues? And it's a, a city-scale solution, in my view, largely because cities generate most of the greenhouse gas in the world. They generate most of the GDP in the world. They also tend to be the political unit that's more responsive many times. And investors understand a city-scale investment, like a power plant or road or bridge or water or something like that, more than they understand a federal-scale thing. So the cliche answers are thinking about uh, optimization, about how we can do the most good for the most people. And those remain, even in a climate-challenged uh, environment, around uh, good density, building so people are close together in a way that's aesthetically pleasing and not just stockpiled, uh, combined with transit, combined with energy. So it's whole system thinking. There are lots of worthy projects, and many of them uh, should be bankable. There's also a lot of capital in the world. There's 10 or $20 trillion of fixed-income investments earning 25 or 3% yield. Let's take it down to just the individual homeowner. Um, will it be difficult to obtain mortgages in the coming years? And do you expect that to play out in a, a relatively brief time period? What are we talking about in terms of a time horizon? Well, in talking about homeowners, first, let's um, imagine uh, homeowners with no debt and no insurance, kind of like pioneers back in the old days, or like lots of people in the rest of the world that don't have access to those things. Pretty much people 
don't build flimsy houses in dangerous places. Or if they do, they expect the consequences. They don't expect anybody to bail them out. You look out for yourself. You don't build in the danger zone. Or if it looks like the danger is going to get worse, you move while you can still get some value. These things really get uh, altered or changed by the fact of mortgages and insurance requirements. So the United States, a lot of people might have a 30-year mortgage backed by Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac. And that also might have insurance provisions that you have to have fire insurance and homeowners insurance, and maybe you have to have flood insurance. So if the base flood elevation requirements rise, and now your house is out of compliance, what do you do? Does the bank foreclose on you? Are you forced to somehow harden your house? Um, do you have to move? Those kind of things, I think, will have tremendous impact on homeowners and also on the entities that hold a 20 or 30-year mortgages. And uh, this will become very apparent in my view and probably in Rachel's view too to those entities in the next zero to 10 years, even though the impact on some of the houses might not play out until 50 or 100 years from now because nobody's going to want to be holding 30-year paper on mortgages that are figuratively and literally underwater. At the moment, it's not beneficial for anybody in the housing industry or any politicians to sort of draw attention to that fact. So that's why the work of people like Rachel is so valuable in helping the regular person be informed and make some good decisions about some of these things before they get distorted by strange things in the insurance market. Rachel Cletus, when we talk about climate change, we often focus on the doom and gloom. But can you give us some sense of the potential opportunities, especially relating to something that you've also worked on quite a bit, environmental justice, and finding ways to heal divisions that have existed for generations in many of our cities? Sure. Uh, to go back to some of the things that John's been pointing out, let's think about all the reasons people are where they are. Why are people living? Why do they own homes where they are? And you start to see uh, a lot of strands there. There's, of course, economic reasons. People want to be near jobs. They want to be near uh, critical infrastructure. There are a lot of uh, cultural reasons. Uh, there's the history of our country's unfortunate uh, racist past, which means that in some places there was mortgage redlining and people were not allowed to buy homes in certain areas and had to live in other areas, some of which might be more exposed to climate risks like flooding now. Uh, there, were, there was the fact that freed slaves were only allowed, formerly enslaved people were only allowed to own property in certain places. Uh, some of those places in the eastern shore of Maryland or in the Gulf Coast of the U.S. are also places that are at very high risk from sea level rise. Um, and then there are the more recent uh, pieces of our country's history, which is where we've built things like airports and major ports and, um, you know, where Amazon or Google locates their hub and creates a lot of jobs. Uh, so all these things pull people to where they are. And when you think about what it'll take when people start to recognize the risks to individual homes or cities or communities, it's really hard because the risk is so widespread to think about individuals getting up and moving in a pioneer fashion. We really have to be thinking about this more collectively because we formed societies. People have are now living next to other people and draw a lot of uh, value from that. You have your neighborhood school that your kids walk to. Uh, you know, you you go to the grocery store around the corner. All of these things. So we can't just, uh, you know, have a stick approach, you know, your home starts to go underwater, it starts to lose value, or someone won't give you a mortgage, and then you get up and move. 
we have to start thinking about a more uh, orderly fashion in which we will have to start disentangling ourselves from these coastal areas. That means building new infrastructure in places where people can go. And that's what I see as the opportunity. We have to be talking about not just coastal retreat, but the opportunity of going to places where we can build new economies, uh, where people can see a future, even as the human dimension of this loss is big, because there are parts of our cultural identity that we can't pick up and move. Uh, we will lose uh, uh, things that people value deeply, including the social cohesion that they've built as this retreat from the coast happens. But we have an obligation as a nation to create those solution spaces where people can see a bright future. And I often see a lot of opportunities where when we work to cut emissions, we can also be building resilience. Uh, you can think of a lot of opportunities where we invest in clean energy that create economic opportunities, but on safer ground inland. John McComer, can you speak more to the coming opportunities for first movers and others who are taking this issue seriously? What kinds of financial instruments do you foresee helping homeowners, businesses, and governments to cope with the challenges ahead? What innovations or changes do you see in the construction, insurance, and transportation industries? Obviously, this is a question you could uh, offer a dissertation on, but in the confines of this discussion, if you could give us a sketch of, of these things, that would be great. Well, Rachel went, mentioned one of the obvious ones is around, well, the obvious benefits, harder to do, is around the new infrastructure for places and building uh, new economies. So an obvious opportunity is in the destination cities. Rachel didn't use that phrase this time, but I've heard it before. There's also a detriment there. Some of those destination cities don't want to see people coming in, but there's opportunities for cities that are competing that way. Um, less obvious opportunities, I think, are for financial investors. So they could, of course, just invest in those destination cities and think that more people are going to go to in Massachusetts, they're going to go to Worcester, or they're going to go to Manchester, New Hampshire, instead of being in Boston. But you can also make financial bets um, already, and that may accelerate. Well, one example would be on REIT, or real estate investment trust portfolios. And there are analysts now who will give information about whether they think some uh, real estate investment trust portfolio is more exposed to a potential climate incident or, or storm than another one is. And in theory, you could invest long or positively on the one that you thought was more secure, and you would short sell the one that was less secure. It's sort of a replay of 2007, 2008, when people were nervous about some of the securities in the housing market and had to find a way to long or short sell that market. Similarly, there could be uh, those kind of bets on municipal bonds. For the most part, municipal bonds now are rated by the big rating agencies the normal way, based on debt service coverage and loan-to-value ratio, not necessarily climate exposure, which means that a sewage treatment plant in Miami would have the same uh, rating for climate as one in Denver. But it's much more likely that the one in Miami uh, might either get flooded or might see its population depart. Either way, it couldn't cover its cash flow as well. Similarly, Rachel talked a little bit about um, cities that can't collect property taxes the way they thought because there's a decline in property values. That would impact those cities' ability to repay their own general obligation bonds, and that, in theory, would also impact ratings. You can make bets on those things today. There's also another uh, industry that a lot of people are not aware of, which is private climate modeling. So there are, are three uh, major climate modeling companies who sell information to other players, and most of the big reinsurance companies have their own as well. So all our lives are being modeled by these kind of companies, 
in parallel to how all this information is collected on us by the big credit card and social network companies. So um, people have more information than other people do. So broadly, there's opportunity if you have lots of capital and access to good information. The flip side, which is the, the inequity part, is if you don't have a lot of capital or you have bad information, then you have kind of negative opportunities. And that's part of what Rachel and I are both trying to help with is to at least disseminate information so regular people can make good decisions. And from your point of view, Rachel, Cletus, can you give us a sense of any new technologies or specific investments you think businesses and policymakers should be making to address climate change? I think the most important investment we need to make right now is uh, making sure that we're communicating the risk well, but also that we're starting that process of a stakeholder conversation that really has a community or city-scale conversation about building resilience. Because businesses have a very important role to play, but they can't play it in isolation. Otherwise, to hearken back to John's original image uh, after Hurricane Sandy, when we had the Goldman Sachs and Bank of America buildings lit up, you get that kind of world where everything is in darkness and two buildings are lit up. And what did that really do for Goldman Sachs? Its employees couldn't get to the building. Infrastructure was down. Um, So you have a Christmas tree, essentially. That's not resilience. So businesses can really work in breaking down some of the silos right now that stand in the way of building broad resilience because they have employees, they have supply chains, all of which depend on things that are beyond just their immediate footprint. And to open that conversation, to see ourselves in a world that we're connected and we have to be thinking about resilience as a societal imperative is a very important part of how we're going to have to tackle this challenge. And I see businesses and policymakers working with communities together and building that world. John McOmer, given that emissions are continuing to increase and our ability to curb warming trends seems at the moment dubious, what's your best argument for optimism about the future? Well, there's certainly opportunity to argue pessimism about the future. In terms of optimism, I look at it in terms of, okay, here's where we are. What are we going to do? And if you look at the optimistic side, historical context that the shores have always changed. People have always migrated. We're six feet tall, but that's not so important to an ocean that's six miles deep or a planet that's 8,000 miles across. In our lifespans of maybe four score and 20 years aren't that important to a planet that's billions of years old. We just happen to be short, but mostly we happen to stack our assets close to the shore, or a lot of people stack their assets close to the shore. So perhaps this will mean ultimately that land becomes less of a store of value. People have always thought in sort of historical time that that land was a place to put worth. Maybe that's not so. Uh, Maybe there'll be other stores of value. I don't know that it would necessarily be Bitcoin or other movable assets or even uh, movable uh, transportable buildings that aren't necessarily dependent on the location. Or you can imagine where Lots of things are sold as a service. You could think of residence as a service, housing as a service, transportation as a service, so that those things move around, and then the values that you bring with yourself individually are more important than the piece of dirt. This also could lead to fantastic new urban forms and and a chance to build new in many, many locations if we can plan ahead and think of collective benefit. So if we don't plan ahead and uh, some of the, the people who have more uh, influence, go ahead and do it the way they want it. That isn't necessarily going to come to the best outcome. 
optimism is is hard in the face of these climate impacts that are coming our way. Uh, to me, what gives me hope is uh, I see people in communities all around the country and the world who are really starting to grapple with the scale of what's coming our way. And that's critical to really engage uh, people in this conversation so it's not a top-down social engineering project, but one in which people see themselves. And to me, one of the most uh, hopeful pieces of all this is watching young people in the streets doing climate strikes, talking about this as their future. They are angry at us, our generation that has failed to act and act in a bold fashion. They have no patience for dithering about. They're looking for bold, ambitious visions, and they are not looking to crawl in a corner and curl up. They want a bright future. And so to me, it's us leaning into that vision, into our children and grandchildren's future and doing what we need to get there. The biggest thing we can do uh, right now is to, first of all, at the highest levels of our U.S. government, this climate denial stuff is deeply, deeply disturbing. Uh, we have no time to waste on uh, that kind of rhetoric. We have to be in an action-oriented space, and the human spirit is resilient. We are, uh, uh, our minds are engines of ingenuity. We are problem-solving people. This is a big problem, but it's the, the wonderful thing about the science is it's telling us what's coming our way. Uh, this is not coming out of the blue. We can see the risks. We have scientific projections about places and how it's going to worsen. So we have time to act, and let's use that time wisely. No time to waste. Let's get moving right away in implementing some of these solutions. And now a story from Mike Toffel, a professor of environmental management at Harvard Business School. The image of the bank buildings glowing in the darkness in the aftermath of Hurricane Sandy keeps popping into my mind. It highlights both the potential of what companies can achieve, but also the limitations of their acting alone. At the most basic level, it provides an example of asset protection. It makes me think of the resiliency framework that my colleague Professor John McComber developed, what he calls the four R's. These are rebuild, reinforce, restrict, and retreat. These companies in New York had the information, the resources, and the strategic foresight to reinforce their buildings with sandbags to prevent flooding and to install backup generators to keep the lights on and their systems running. But how much value did these efforts actually provide? Those buildings certainly suffered less damage, but when you pull back the lens to see these brightly lit buildings sitting in a sea of darkness, this bigger picture demonstrates just how important it is for a company's resilience plans to extend to its community. As Rachel Cletus pointed out, keeping the lights on, in this case, did little good when the streets were too flooded for people to get to work and the entire supply chain of goods and services was disrupted. And so, to effectively engage in real estate resiliency, managers need to work with policymakers to look beyond their own buildings and employees working within them and to also plan for the flow of their employees other people, and their supply chain of goods and services that enable the organization to function. Building a fortress is less valuable than ensuring resiliency of an entire community. Take the example of Massachusetts General Hospital, or MGH, here in Boston. MGH launched a department focusing on the public health perils of climate change, and has also become a leader of an effort to build a regional disaster health response program 
designed to enable the building to function and provide critical services in the event of a disaster. To do this, they need to think not just about their building functioning, but ways to get staff, patients, and critical supplies to their building. So what should managers do? First, do a deep dive assessing your risks using the latest data available. The former head of FEMA, the U.S. Federal Emergency Management Agency, recently said that many flood maps are woefully out of date and are generally too conservative, so you need to work from the very latest risk profiles. Also, Jerry Mitrovica, a geophysics professor here at Harvard, has produced fascinating research that predicts that the sea levels won't rise to the same extent around the world, and that the amount of sea level rise experienced on the American and European coasts will depend on whether glacier melting is happening faster in Greenland or Antarctica. We know that cities like Boston, New York, Shanghai, and Dhaka are particularly vulnerable to sea level rise. Second, managers should review and upgrade their resilience plan, but take it a step further than your own footprint to also include how employees and supplies will get to your sites and consider the four R's. What will you plan to rebuild? What do you need to reinforce? In what regions will you, or regulations, restrict you from operating? And what regions should you plan to retreat from? The question of resilience in real estate, especially for the concepts of business continuity and risk management, is so much bigger than just how to secure your real estate assets. And hopefully this episode of Climate Rising has helped expose some of the key issues and cutting-edge thinking about real estate resilience, a business and climate change issue that's going to be increasingly important in the years ahead. That's it for Climate Rising this week. In our next episode, we'll look at how transportation is contributing to global warming, business strategies that may help, and what may be required to get consumers on board. We know that being stuck in traffic is one of the worst ways to spend one's time. It's the most negative for stress, um, has been linked to higher incident rates of cardiovascular disease, and it's one of the worst activities for happiness. So really, I I come at this from this question of, well, carpooling and and ride-sharing, that seems great, solves all kinds of problems, gets people commuting together, which is less stressful, but also helps the environment, which is a really huge societal problem right now. Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, David Abel. This is Climate Rising, podcast produced by Harvard Business School. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And please leave us a review. We appreciate the feedback.